MSW Media. Red, red wine. Go to my head. Make me forget Well, pour yourself a glass, sit for a spill. It's time to have some fun. Let's do a little thinking, some picking and a drinking. But this is what we're drinking with Dan Dunn. Oh boy, am I excited today. Uh, life's simple pleasures. I got a new microphone, a Blue Yeti Nano microphone that I'm really digging. I like the look of it. I like the feel of it. And I hope the sound of it's good. I hope it enhances your listening experience. Please uh, hit me up at the imbiber on Twitter and Instagram. Let me know what you think about the new sound. The new sound. Folks, six years ago this week, I set out on what would turn out to be one of the most epic adventures of my life. My life. Climbed into my Toyota FJ Cruiser, which I dubbed Carl Vehicle. I know you're supposed to name your car after a female, but I you know, I, tried, I wanted to buck the trend. So I, I, I named it Carl Vehicle. I pulled out of my place in Venice Beach and spent nearly three and a half months driving around, visiting wineries all over the United States, from Napa to Big Sky Country to the East Coast and all across the South. And then I wrote a book about it called American Wino, A Tale of Reds, Whites, and One Man's Blues, available everywhere books are sold. Hint. I met a lot of great people on that trip, a lot of whom, regrettably, I haven't seen or spoken to since, but a few of them have remained friends have become good friends and one of those people is a winemaker by the name of trey bush of sleight of hand cellars in walla walla washington in just a few minutes i'm going to be talking with my buddy trey about his little corner of the american winemaking world which in my opinion is really one of the country's real gems maybe even a hidden gem i don't know how many of you out there have had wines from walla walla but they are excellent and we're going to be getting into that with Trey in just a little bit. Remember a few years ago when the words haters and hating and trolls were the go-to buzzwords? Anytime someone saw or heard something that they didn't like, made them feel bad. Well, as is so often the case through overuse, those words gradually lost power. And people, for the most part, stopped using them. I mean, people are still using, but not on the scale that it was then. Okay, so I was listening to a very popular podcast the other day. I won't say what show it was, and a guest on that show, and I won't say who she was, was telling the host about a relationship she'd recently ended. And she recounted all sorts of problems her and her ex had, but it turns out the thing that ultimately did it in for her was his incessant complaining about the fact that she slept a lot. She slept late, she slept 
10, 12 hours at a time. I guess this guy was a morning person. He'd get up, go for a run, get coffee, make breakfast, and she'd still be in bed. And that bothered him. And the fact that it bothered him really bothered her. And she repeatedly referred to his issues with her excessive slumbering as, wait for it, wait for it, sleep shaming. And with that, the word shaming officially took its place alongside winning and bullying on the list of words I, and I think all of you, should think twice about using. And it's a shame, really. Sorry, I couldn't resist. Because shame, like hate, is a powerful idea, and people should not be made to feel ashamed about things like who they have sex with, or how often they have sex, or their looks, or their weight. And shame can be a great tool for calling people out for atrocious behavior. Although, let's face it, in the age of Trump, shame kind of has checked out. And there are all sorts of other problems associated with, with that as well. But that's a subject for another time, another rant on this show, perhaps. But again, the problem is that the use of the word shaming isn't limited to areas where it would still be a useful, clear concept. Now, when your significant other suggests that maybe you try and get out of bed before noon, that is a fence right up there with Rush Limbaugh calling Sandra Fluke a slut and prostitute? No, it's not. It's not even close. The key thing to keep in mind here is that not all criticism is shaming. In fact, most of it isn't. Just because someone shares a differing opinion than yours doesn't mean they're bullies and shamers or trolls, haters. And incessantly using those words, throwing them around or using them like a cudgel, really strips them of any power they might have had. So if someone points out that you use the word your, Y-O-U-R, when the correct word is Y-O-U apostrophe R-E, they're not grammar shaming you. They're simply pointing out that you're Y-O-U apostrophe R-E, an idiot. And if someone, say, drinking podcast host, calls you an idiot for getting all worked up about the fact that you can't fucking spell your, Y-O-U apostrophe R-E, not being intelligence shamed, you're simply being called out for what you are. If you spend every waking minute on Facebook oversharing about every single challenge and hardship life throws at you, and someone chimes in with a snarky, witty comment or suggests maybe, you know, you might want to save some of that griping for your therapy sessions, they're not struggle-shaming you. They're simply pointing out that we all stopped giving a fuck about your pain that time you posted a 5,000-word diatribe about the guy in the Porsche who cut you off on the 405. So you're an insufferable whiner. And we all know it. So for Christ's sakes, people, just shut up and deal with it. While people behind me are going insane. I'm an asshole. He's an asshole. I'm an asshole. He's an asshole. I can't. I can only use a little bit of that song. Dennis Leary will sue me. Anyway, where was I? Oh, yeah. Talking about American Wino earlier. Uh, Trey Bush is coming up in just a few minutes, but I thought I'd, I'd, I'd regale you with a story, 
a little story from American Wino. It's not necessarily wine-centric. This is more uh, traumatic childhood-centric, but what the hell. My mother is not an educated woman, which is not the same as saying she's stupid. In fact, my mom will be the first to tell you that she never cared much for formal schooling. After scraping through elementary school at St. Martin of Tours in Northeast Philadelphia, she completed an entirely unremarkable year at Little Flower High School for Girls before deciding to drop out to pursue other interests. These interests primarily consisted of, in decreasing order, sitting around, standing around, and smoking. My mother's parents were not reasonable people on their best days, so when they learned that she had abandoned her secondary education, she was giving both a whipping and a choice. Either re-enroll somewhere, anywhere, that might pass for an institute of learning, or immediately matriculate at the University of Homeless Prostitutes. So it was that Charlene Fabrizio wound up at Mercy Vocational School, a cheerless depository for scholastic castoffs, to all appearances based on the Soviet gulag model. For three years, she commuted an hour each way from her lousy neighborhood to an even more dilapidated one in North Philadelphia. The neighborhood was gloriously decorated with abandoned cars, condemned buildings, and the smoking embers of the American dream. In 1967, at the age of 17, Charlene was unceremoniously discharged from Mercy Vocational with a certificate in, quote, beauty culture, which is about as hilarious as graduating from Yale with a degree in panhandling, except without all the job security. A few months later, she somehow passed the state board exam in cosmetology, with flying colors, she's still proud of saying, and became an officially licensed hairdresser. A few months after that, I slid, real pretty-like, out of her nether regions. I've never asked her and probably never will, but I suspect my mother hasn't read a book from cover to cover since, uh, since forever. Her inexhaustible non-reading list includes, of course, the three books that I published. It's difficult to imagine a scenario in which she would be moved to flip through the pages of this tome either, which is why I'm comfortable telling you the details of her extravagantly Dickensian life story. There are a host of reasons for me to fear my mother but her becoming incensed over something I wrote is not one of them. For as book-smart as my mom isn't, though, she has a remarkable capacity for retaining and regurgitating bromides. Indeed, virtually every word of encouragement, wisdom, inspiration, or castigation she's ever bestowed upon me was originally said by someone else before being repeated by others to the point of near meaninglessness. As the French poet Gérard de Navarre once opined, the first man who compared woman to a rose was a poet, the second an imbecile. Of course, had Dean Nerval said something like that to my mom, she would have probably punched him in the face. Not for any reason, mind you, he just looked like he had it coming. See, my mom doesn't know things, but her lack of knowledge is matched by an equally impressive apathy about acquiring knowledge. And in the absence of critical thought, man, do those bromides come in handy. So not only does my mom not read books... She doesn't judge them by their covers. The handwriting on the wall, on the other hand, well, that marches to the beat of a different drummer and takes the bull by the horns while making lemonade out of lemons. Regardless of the situation, my mom likes to fight fire with fire, catch flies with honey rather than vinegar, and when in doubt, she always, always looks before she leaps. On the other hand, she would not be caught dead beating a dead horse, isn't one to cry over spilt milk, and never bites off more than she can chew though she also somehow never says never. Consistency is not her strong suit. 
Mom also regularly conflates cliches, resulting in entirely new forms of non-knowledge, a sort of squared ignorance that's almost its own absurd genius. Because you gotta break a few eggs to make a cake, but remember not to put all those eggs in one basket, because then you can't have the cake and eat it too. With all the eggs, there's no room for utensils, see? And if you can't eat it, join it. Just don't forget which side your bread is buttered on because the grass is always greener over there. After living with this kind of thing for my entire childhood, I became almost entirely immune to mom's hackneyed exhortations. I literally don't hear them. Except for one, that is. When I was 10 years old, some friends and I went to see a movie called Hooper. It starred Burt Reynolds as the world's greatest stuntman. I was pretty sure at the time that it was a documentary. It was an inspiring film, and we left the theater energized, intent on emulating our new hero, Sonny Hooper. Since we weren't yet capable of growing mustaches or bedding Sally Field, we instead procured a large piece of plywood and some milk crates and constructed a device that might best be described as a child's suicide facilitator. We, however, called it a ramp. In a bizarre twist of fate, I didn't kill myself. For that, I credit both my youthful verdure and the sturdy construction and shock-absorbent balloon tires of my trusty Huffy. I did, however, suffer a compound fracture of my left wrist, which hurt the way Scarlett Johansson looks a fucking lot. Of course, it was the 1970s, and if you couldn't afford health insurance, and we certainly couldn't, you didn't get prescription pain medication. Now, of course, you can't swing a drug dealer in my old neighborhood without knocking over a hand truck of Oxycontin. Progress. The night of the accident, I spent an indefinable period of time lying in my bed alone, a ball of tears, mucus, and pain. My mother was mightily pissed that she had to cut her shift short at Oliveri's barbershop to come extract me from the hospital. On the bus ride home, I tried to explain what happened, that I'd been possessed by the spirit of Sonny Hooper, that one too many milk crates may have been used in the construction of the ramp. But she just shook her head in disgust and said that Burt Reynolds and I were a couple of assholes. That hurt. I still harbored the secret fantasy that Mom and Burt Reynolds would get married someday. She ignored me for the first few hours, but at some point, her maternal instincts must have kicked in. She came to my room and lay in the bed beside me. For a long time, she didn't say anything, just held me in her arms as I wailed in agony. The deluge of tears eventually gave way to mild blubbering, and my mom got up and said it was time for her to go to sleep. She added that I didn't have to go to school the next day, and she was sorry for calling me an asshole on the bus that her and Burt Reynolds, well, it probably wasn't going to happen. Mom, I whimpered. Yes. Is my arm going to get better? Yes, she said, before you know it. But how do you know? I know, she said. But how? She leaned in and whispered, because time heals all wounds. All right. With that, we're going to hear from our one of our sponsors, Keeps. And then on the other side of that break, we're going to be talking to Trey Bush. Folks, I've never admitted this on the show before, but I'm a guy. Yeah, it's true. And as a guy, I'm here to tell you that so much of our identity is wrapped up in our hair. That's why when we get into our 20s and 30s and start noticing the first signs of hair loss, it definitely feels like panic time. Because let's face it, no guy is ever ready to go bald. Thankfully, now there's Keeps, the simple and easy way to keep your hair. You used to have to go to the doctor's office for your hair loss prescription. Now, thanks to Keeps, you can visit a doctor online and get hair loss medication delivered right to your home. Treatments start at just $10 per month. Plus, for a limited time, you can get your first month free. That's right. 
free. How? Well, if you're ready to take action and prevent hair loss, go to keeps.com slash drinking. That's K-E-E-P-S dot com slash drinking to receive your first month of treatment for free. Take care of your hair and your hair will take care of you. Joining me now on the program is a gentleman who I met, as mentioned earlier in the show, I met him six years ago. It's crazy to me that it's been that long. He is the co-owner and head winemaker at really one of my favorite wineries in these United States, Sleight of Hand Cellars in Walla, Walla, Washington. Please welcome to the show. Trey Bush. Thank you, Dan. Don. That's a, uh, you've been to uh, so many states and tasted a lot of wine from around the country. So that's high praise right there, buddy. Well, man, you and I, first of all, thank you for doing this. And, uh, and thank you for making such great wine. Honestly, my, my experience with Walla Walla was probably a lot of people of my generation was you'd hear it on Bugs Bunny. Bug on, on, <laughs> on, uh, what was it? Looney Tunes. So whenever Bugs Bunny would order something, right? Am I, I think I got this right. Whenever he would order a crazy product or something, it was always from Walla Walla, Washington, right? Walla Walla, Washington. That's right. And yeah. then Letterman also used it too from the home office in Walla Walla, Washington. You know, look, it, the town's so nice. They named it twice. All right. Yeah. And, uh, and you know that there's also a Walla Walla in Australia, by the way. I did not know that. It's crazy. And it's an Aboriginal name. And the Aboriginal name means the same thing as the Native American name. You know, we're named after the Walla Walla Indian tribe, Native American tribe here. And it means land of many waters. And it's in the Aboriginal name in uh, Australia is very similar. So, uh, I didn't know. See, look at this. We're already laying some knowledge on people here. I thought they, people might've thought they were just going to learn about wine, but they're also learning about Aboriginal history of Australia. I like this. Now, when, when we met, I, I, I came to, I, you know, I, again, I didn't know much about Walla Walla. What was the real beauty of my trip? And I send my sincerest thanks out to everybody who helped with this is I was also sort of chronicling the journey simultaneously for, um, food and wine for their website and also a site called food Republic that I don't think is even around anymore. But so that helped in that I, every, not every state, but most States, as you know, Trey have a wine commission or, you know, they, some sort of a group that helps promote the wine trade in that state. Right. And, and certainly Washington was no exception. And uh, I'm forgetting her name right now. And I, I hate that I am, but Whoever it was that helped me up there, she sort of helped map out my whole trip around Washington State. Now, I was primarily, I thought, coming to Walla Walla to meet with Charles Smith, who's one of the more well-known winemakers, certainly from that area. And I had a whole thing mapped out with him. And then then you were on the schedule and a couple of, and little did I know that the person that I would end up becoming, you know, friends with and remain friends with was this small, because you, you guys have a small place, but it was such a cool wine i mean the winery itself you know the the tasting room you've got a ton of vinyl in there and it's just got a really amazing vibe and jerry your partner in the business 
is a really cool guy. Now talk a little bit about sleight of hand and what kind of wines you're making there. And Sure. Yeah. So Jerry, um, Jerry and I met uh, way back in the day uh, at the Sun Valley Wine Auction. I was actually the winemaker for a small, small winery called Basil Cellars here in town. And he and I met and became good friends. And just over the course of several years of knowing each other, that blossomed into a partnership to start um, a small project here in town. So I left Basil and Jerry and I started Sleight of Hand in 2007. And uh, when we started the winery, the first four years, we had a tiny little tasting room, 800 square feet on 2nd Avenue in downtown Walla Walla. And you walked, you walked Main Street while you were here, Dan. And, uh, you know, it's, it's been awarded Best Main Street in America, uh, USA Today magazine. It's been, you know, in all the magazines. It, it really is a great little downtown. And um, we, we were con- kind of content. We were making two or 3,000 cases a year and things were going good. But we started making a little more wine. We were selling out every year. We had a great wine club. Uh, and in order to keep our tasting room open, we had to make a little more wine. And we got to the point where we needed to actually buy a property and build a proper building for a winemaking facility because we were custom crushing in our next door neighbor's uh, winery and just using his facilities to make wine. So in 2011, we purchased the property next door to Savaya, which is our next door neighbor, and built out our tasting room, which you came to see, and built our two winery buildings over the course of three years. And now we're up to about 10,000 cases of wine that we're making out of that facility. And that, that's really as much as we can make. We really can't, we just can't process any more fruit and store it there. And it's a really good number for us. We've got, oh gosh, we've got uh, our full-time winemakers, Keith Johnson and Taylor is our assistant winemaker. And we've got an intern helping named Bailey. And we've got two full-time tasting room people that are also a wine club folks. So, and then we've got a, a tasting room in Seattle too. Let's talk about a little bit your background. Very fast. You were in the military. Then you got in the fashion. We're going to go back to the yeah, late 80s. Uh, I graduated high school in 88 and joined the Navy right out of high school and uh, was stationed in Seattle. And that really was my impetus for finding the Pacific Northwest. And I was stationed up here for two years on a ship and I uh, got to travel around the world and see a bunch of really cool stuff. And I came back. I grew up in Atlanta, Georgia. And so I went back home when I got out of the Navy and went to the University of Georgia. And uh, in 1992, a band from Seattle named Pearl Jam rolled through. And uh, I was a huge fan. And I saw that show. And a couple of weeks later, I essentially dropped out of school, jumped in my car and moved to Seattle. And so uh, I, were you were following Pearl Jam, basically. I was just going to I was not going to miss. I knew that that was going to be the scene. You know, there's always these two or three year periods where the spotlight is on Athens, Georgia or New York for the punk scene or L.A. for the metal scene. You know. So you 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 had the feeling at that time. This is when we talk about in 92 around there. April, April 92. So you knew uh, that Seattle was going to be the next thing. And, and that, you know, Nirvana was blowing up and Soundgarden was blowing up. It was the very, very beginning of it, like before the Lollapalooza tour of 92, which really launched Pearl Jam and Soundgarden. They were the openers. I went to that tour. They were the openers, which was crazy. Was the Red the Hot Chili Peppers, Peppers were the, were the Chili headliners. Peppers, yeah. Lush, Ice-T, Ministry. I was, at the, I was at that show. So 
we came to Seattle and with, that was a Lollapalooza tour that I saw up there as well. The kids have candy fairgrounds, but that was literally got me back up to the Northwest was that. And then I, I got a job at Nordstrom and I was a clothing guy for almost 10 years. I was a buyer for the company when I left, but I had a good friend in the music business who owned a record store who was from, from Walla Walla. And when he moved back to Walla Walla from Seattle, um, I started to visit my friend, Jamie. And through Jamie, I met Eric Dunham. Eric Dunham had Dunham Cellars, which has been around since 1995. And Eric and I became great friends. And that friendship ended up, it turned into a job opportunity to come work for him. And so I quit my job at Nordstrom, moved, uh, was married at the time and had a, a one-year-old baby daughter and Kaylee. And I, we moved to Walla Walla and that's how I got in the wine business. Went to go work for Eric. Now, uh, I may have, have this wrong, but is Eric your friend who passed away? He did. He, okay. Yeah. Cause I, re- I know that you, I saw that you've usually commemorate that every year. And I know your posts are extremely heartfelt and he, clearly had a very profound effect on your life. Yeah, for sure. I mean, and, and always in the most positive way, we were, we were very similar uh, people. We had very similar backgrounds. He was in the Navy that he was the same age as I was. Lots and lots of similarities. And, and, and from a winemaking standpoint, first of all, he was a great friend. Uh, and it's always tough to lose a friend. From a winemaking standpoint, Eric was an artistic winemaker. He's a very artistic person anyway. He was not a science-based person. He didn't do things in the winery that were based off of just pure science. If things felt right to Eric, that's how he did stuff. So there was an, there was an intuitive thing to, to the winemaking. Not, intuitive. Yeah, because you, you can, right? I mean, explain out there, you know, you can make wine by the numbers, right? You can just kind of go here. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And, and you know, you're like, I'm going to pick it at this particular sugar level and we need to get the acid and bring the acid to here. And would, Eric was never about that. Eric was, he used to love to blend different sites together to create complexity in the final wine based on having four or five different vineyard sites. And each of those sites brought a little something different. So when Eric would sit down and blend, it was a really fast process. He would sit down, he's like, okay, we've got six Cabernet lots. At the time, his Cabernets were always 100% Cabernet. And he would taste through everything. And he's like, okay, well, those are great. Let's get them blended together. And I'm like, I'm thinking we're going to get a beaker out and we're going to measure things. And he's like, nope, that, that's going to be an awesome wine. And he was never wrong. The two and a half years I worked for him. Wouldn't you say, Trey, that that's kind of, I mean, that's the way it was done forever in the old world, right? These guys, you know, these guys in Bordeaux and Burgundy, sure. they weren't pulling out, they weren't pulling out you know, their computer and, and breaking down the metrics on it, right. It was, it was a winemaker had a feel for the wine. Yeah. And, and it's also because, you know, they were in their vineyard, they were part of their vineyard and they, they had a history with that vineyard. They knew this vineyard, this particular part of the vineyard may give you something different than, than this particular parcel over here. And maybe they would separate those out during fermentation or something or picking decisions, but it is inherently, it's it's more difficult to learn from somebody like that, the art of winemaking, because how do you teach somebody intuition? You can teach somebody science and science is science. This is how you measure the sugar. This is how you measure the acid. This is how you measure the pH. These are the numbers, blah, blah. But when it comes to teaching somebody to pick something when it just feels right, as opposed to relying on a certain number being somewhere, 
it's a little more difficult. I'm grateful that I learned under him because I feel like through osmosis, I inherited a lot of that. And um, Jerry, uh, on the other hand, has an incredible palate. And so when we sit down to blend, and it's Keith and Jerry and I, Jerry is very much a, a big part of that process because he's a, he does have such a terrific palate. And he'll see things that I don't see. I, I'm, I'm more of the let's blend these together and see how it turns out. And Jerry's like, what if we pulled these two barrels out? Because I remember tasting these two barrels in the cellar and they had a little bit of a harsh edge to them and sure as shit, we'll go pull them out. And he, and he was right. And so uh, he's, you know, uh, invaluable asset. Now. And so that's in crafting the, the flavor profile. How would you describe sleight of hand wines? We're, we're, we're mostly Bordeaux varietals and Rhone varietals. And so we do make a little bit of Riesling. We do make a little bit of Chardonnay. But when it comes to our reds, it's Bordeaux varietals and Rhone varietals. And um, as you know, we're 14 years old now. And as we've developed uh, what I think we're, we're kind of locked into our style now, what we want to make are elegant, age-worthy wines that provide a ton of drinking pleasure early but also have the ability to age for 20 or 25 years. Let me ask you that. I want to cut you. I want to ask you right there. You always hear people say that as a winemaker, what are you doing to the wine? What needs to happen in order for a wine to be ageable? What, 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 what's the difference between a wine that's ageable and not ageable? You need acid, you need tannin, and you need to have enough fruit that was in the wine on the day you picked it, because once you pick that off the vine, that's where that wine is at. Right. And so it's the balance of having still having enough acid. Look, we grow wine in a desert. Eastern Washington is hot as fuck in the summertime. I mean, it's hot. It, although you're in LA today and I know it's like yeah, sweating years. like a, woo. <laughs> but in general, July, August up here, we're 95 to 105 degrees every day. This year has been a little different, been a little cooler. But in general, it, so to find, it, we have no problem getting our fruit ripe. What we want to make sure, a sleight of hand, is we're not picking past that. We're not picking that fruit overripe. Because what and would that? What could happen then to the wine? Easy, because the wines are flabby. They have no acid. They're jammy. They have a. They, they can take on a prune characteristic, raisiny note from that excessive um, sugar. That's been converted into alcohol, right? So now you're talking about 15 and a half percent alcohol wines. And A, that's not something I want to drink. So the lower alcohol wines are going to be the ones that are going to, you know, you know, like when you see the, the old world wines, they tend to be around 11%, right? 12%. The reds are like, the reds are 12 and a half to 14. Okay. That's where the reds kind of be, you know, and the whites are in that 11 and a half to 13% alcohol range. I completely generalizing. It's, you know, you can go to Spain and find a 15% alcohol wine, no problem. But in Washington, I find that because, I'll give you an example. Four days ago, it was 101 degrees. It was 50 degrees at night. We had a 50-degree shift in temperature. And that huge diurnal shift allows us to hang on to our acids. At the same time, getting that fruit ripe. And so for us... I think it's very easy to make age-worthy wines, but also that drink well young and have enough fruit to keep people who just don't know a ton about wine interested. They're like, oh, it's delicious. Let's just say, just in basic terms, somebody's like, I want to go buy a wine that I know I can lay down for 15 years. 
what what are they looking for? How would they how would they, how would the average wine buyer determine? Is there a certain varietal you're looking for? A certain region you're looking for? You just got to get on Google and look it up. I think you you have to go you know go to a nice wine shop and talk to the proprietor who probably tasted that wine. Give me an example, Trey, of a wine that you might make that is not an age. I mean, besides besides a white, obviously, but a red wine that isn't really meant to age. It's it meant to be drunk young. What would be an example of that? Think, you know, most grocery store brands that you see out there, you know, in that eight to fifteen dollar range, those wines that people who make those wines know that they're going to be bought that day and consumed within the week, and they're made in that style, and they're just not made to age. They're they're going to be softer, softer tannin softer acid profile, a little riper fruit profile, probably. Um, now, what, what's the benefit for a winemaker for the fruit to be a little riper? Is it just you get a higher yield or you get, you know? I think it's the, it, the flavors are, you do get bigger fruit flavors. Right away, and, right off the bat. Yeah, and people love that. I mean, look, I, I'm, I don't discount what people like to drink. And, you know, what we don't make at Sleight of Hand is we don't make big, oaky, I call them slutty wines and people love, they really do. People love slutty wine because they're usually really dark. And so a lot of people judge a wine right off the bat. That's the first thing you see, right? You look at the color, like, Oh my God, this is rich. Yeah. Deep red color. Yeah. You know, the alcohol combined with all that fruit and they drink it. It's really soft, easy to go down. And so it's, you know, again, nothing wrong with that style of wine. It's just not what we make. I want to, uh, I want to go back a little bit to, uh, you mentioned Pearl Jam. Now you were yeah. involved, you ended up becoming, were you the president of the Pearl Jam fan club? You were, you were <laughs> something, right? Were you pretty? No. No? no, I, I, no, uh, the Pearl Jam fan club is run within the Pearl Jam organization. The 10 club, uh, right? The 10 club. Yeah, 10 club. And that's a good friend of mine named Tim Bierman. And I've known Tim for probably 15 years now. And, and one of my most cherished friendships uh, that I have because of the access that Tim has given me to, uh, first of all, Tim, just an amazing human being. But beyond that, he has allowed me to work my way within their organization to do cool stuff. Like we made wine for them two years ago. I, I have a bottle of that Pearl Jam wine. I'm, now, is that yeah. one that I should hold on to? That's going to age? You, you don't drink that wine I, because that wine, uh, I, I will send you a bottle of that without the label on it. All right. That way you can drink that wine and you can keep that one because that's going to be worth a lot of money. Yeah, I've got. In fact, I'm looking over at my fridge right now where I have that thing sitting. Isn't it true that uh, so Eddie, I, you know, I've seen Pearl Jam not nearly as many times as you have, but Eddie likes to put away a bottle or two while he's on stage. He's he's like, had slight of slight of hand. Of yeah, a bottle of sugar easy. and so. he drinks yours right on stage. That's on my wine on stage, which has been pretty cool. Yeah. Have you yeah. been to a show where he was drinking your wine? He's a Barolo guy. He loves he loves Italian wine. Oh, he does. He does. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I, I I've seen them where I'm pretty sure he's had at least two bottles. <laughs> oh, I've seen him for sure that way too. Especially at the end of the show, and you're you can tell he's feeling good. So amazing band. How many times have you seen Pearl Jam? Oh, and that's that 80, 80 show range. See, and I thought I was crazy with you too. I've seen you two fifty times. Five zero. You've got me beat with Pearl Jam. I did see, I did see, I've only seen you two one time and it was on the Joshua Tree reunion tour two summers ago. I was at that one. I actually saw Pearl Jam open for you two in Hawaii, in Hawaii. I was at that show. So what what had happened was the, uh, 
they had a they were on tour and I the Edge's daughter got sick and they had to cancel or they had to postpone some shows for a while. And and Hawaii was one of them. That was going to be the last show on the tour anyway. So when they did finally come back, they wanted to make it really special. So Bono reached out. I think Eddie's a big fan of Bono. And right. Bono reached out to Eddie and said, would you guys want to open for us in Hawaii? And Eddie said, yeah. And also Billy Joe Armstrong from uh, Green Day Green came Day. over as well. And uh, it was at the uh, stadium over there in Honolulu. And it was an amazing, it was an amazing trip. It's in one of my books. I think it's in my first book. Nobody likes a quitter. Uh, I talk about that a little bit, but, um, so do you, when you're, let's go back to the wine thing again. I was talking in general about Walla Walla as a a really a, a, an area viticultural area that maybe not a lot of people know about that aren't real, you know, onophiles, but just the average wine drinker, but it's such a, what makes it such a great place for wine? It really produces great wine. It's a, it's a beautiful valley. It, it's a very small region. It's got a long uh, history of agriculture um, that uh, Lewis and Clark rolled through in the 1800s, early 1800s. Um, the town of Walla Walla was signed into statehood. I'm sorry, the state of Washington was signed into statehood in Walla Walla, where Brasserie 4 is, a little restaurant. Oh, I, I was, I, that's where I had dinner with Charles Smith my, that night I was in town. Yeah. <laughs> we uh, we polished off a lot of wine. Favorite. What's that? Um, so it's got a long, it's got a long history uh, and a long agricultural history, but we are a little cooler than the rest of Eastern Washington. We've got great soils. We've got a lot of diversity in our soils. And so you've got a lot of different places you can plant grapes and get different things out of them. And we're discovering more and more new places every year. Um, we walked our way all the way into the foothills of the blues. Um, it's one of the largest wheat producing areas in the country. So wheat's our number one agriculture. Everyone's heard of Walla Walla sweet onions. Uh, some of the best onions in the world uh, are grown here. In the, again, we've got great dirt. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, good dirt, good climate. What's the dominant varietal there? Uh, I would say Cabernet and Syrah and Merlot are our main varietals that everyone knows us for. Okay. Um, and I was going to go back to, you know, what kind of launched our area. We're fortunate enough that the first winery in this Valley was Leonetti. Leonetti is one of the most famous wineries in North America. And Gary Figgins, I mean, when that's how you start, you know, everyone that comes behind better have their shit together. And, and so having that, um, you know, Rick Small at Woodward Canyon, Marty Club at Cole 41, having these early pioneers all be great winemakers. And then they're teaching their assistant winemaker. They're a seller master. You know, Eric Dunham was the assistant winemaker at Dunham or at LaCole 41 for two or three years and before he left to start his own thing. And so having that high quality uh, winemaker, you know, kind of be the, the lead. Well, when you come to the Valley, you, you need to have your shit together. And so when I moved here, we only had 14 wineries in the Valley in 2000. And now we're over 140, 150. I don't know what the number is anymore. That's crazy. A lot. Just in, just in Walla Walla, in the Valley there. Even these new wineries that are popping up, I'll give you an example. Um, time and Direction, tiny, 500 case producer, right? My good friend, Steve. He's making kick-ass. We went to go see him yesterday in his taste room. He's making kick-ass wines. 
You've got Grow Grain, uh, a new winery making, looking for weird varietals. And so these new wineries are coming in and they're not just resting on their laurels and riding the, you know, coattails of Leonetti. They're going and making different things and showing the diversity that that is our valley. If somebody out there wants to equate themselves with sleight of hand, I'm sure obviously go to the, go to the website, sleight of hand sellers. But if you were sending someone off, they came by and you wanted them to have a, a, uh, understand what sleight of hand is about. What two, three bottles of your wine would you give them? I, you know, my, my favorite wine that we make is the Archimage and uh, Archimage is our reserve blend, but it's Cap Franc and Merlot. And, um, I love right bank Bordeaux blends and the uh, top wine out of that area most of the years is Cheval Blanc and Cheval Blanc's a very, very famous winery over there. And those wines are very, very expensive. Six, seven, eight hundred dollars. You go find older vintages over a thousand bucks a bottle. Um, but, you know, they've been doing it for hundreds of years. But they're also fantastic wine. So we make a wine. It's our homage to Cheval Blanc. It's a Cap Franc dominant blend most years with Merlot in it. Um, and how much would that? How much would that be? Uh, Fifty-two bucks. So cheaper than the Cheval Blanc. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you can buy you can buy a case for you can buy a case of Archimage for a bottle of Cheval Blanc. <laughs> okay. So then, what other what other one? Uh, the illusion, make, I like the Illusionist. Uh, I'm a fan of that wine. That's our reserve Cabernet, and that's delicious. Uh, and that's all, all estate fruit now from our, our three main Bordeaux estate vineyards. Uh, and then our Syrah program, we make one, two, three, four, four different Syrahs right now. But the, the Syrah that gets the most press and the one that I think uh, speaks to the place that's grown is our estate Syrah called the Psychedelic. And that's the one with the record label on it. Yes. And, uh, you know, 95 to 97 points from all the press every year. And uh, it's a killer bottle of wine from the Rocks District, which is right here in Walla Walla, a new sub-ABA called the Rocks District in Milton Free Water. It's grown in huge cobbles um, in an old ancient riverbed and one of the most unique places to grow grapes in North America, let alone Washington State. Now, you've mentioned some other places, but again, if I know... Rising tide lifts all boats. So, what other wine? You, you've mentioned Leonetti. If if someone, if you were going to say here, you know, here I'm going to tell you what to drink to get an idea what Walla Walla is all about. You got sleight of hand. I'm, I'm going to say Leonetti, right? Anybody? Who else are you going to throw in there? Right. Yeah. I mean, I throw in Lacole 41 for sure because you can find Lacole and when you say Lacole, it's L apostrophe E C O L E, just so everybody knows, right? right. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. Um, you know, again, we'll go with Dunham. Uh, those wines are now all across the country. I think it's still one of the benchmark Cabernets in Washington State. Uh, and then the little guys, like I said, Time and Direction, Grow Grain. Uh, Keith, my production winemaker, has a new label called Devium. And he well, how, do you, how do you spell that one? D-E-V-I-U-M. Devium. Okay. And he's making a Mouved. Uh, he's doing a, a skin contact Roussan. So like, you know, the orange wines. The orange wines, of course. And you know who's news? We're doing some stuff up there. Is uh, the actor Stephen Amell and his partner Drew? They have been work. Did you work with them too, or you're going to? Or we don't, we don't work with them. They're they're yeah they're they're an enigma up here. They're aren't they sort of partnering with various winemakers up there to put out labels they've with got, celebrities? Got several winemakers that are making wines for them for their label, Knocking Point. Knocking Point. That's right. Knocking so point. and I don't. I've had them on my show before. They do, a, or on my previous podcast, but they, you know, I know they did one with Jason 
Momoa and Aisha Tyler and Adam Carolla, where they somehow I they, mean, yeah. It, it, look, it, it, they are fortunate enough to have an audience to be able to reach out to them and a huge fan base to be able to create a brand and grow it as fast as they have. I mean, they're, I think, they're one of the largest wine clubs in the country right now. Well, and, and but I, again, I mean, whatever you think of how they're doing, and I'm not saying that you don't that you that you're disparaging them at all. But the bottom line is, it's it's putting a spotlight on Walla Walla, and that, they're working with great wineries too. So it's not like they're just making bulk wine at some huge production facility. They're working with really great wineries here in the valley. Yeah. So it's it's the I mean, I tell you, everybody out there listening. You know, we all know Napa, we all know Sonoma, even the Willamette Valley in Oregon. And and I'm not that Washington State, you know, certainly people that know wine know Washington State. But when people ask me about the places that I was most impressed with, Walla Walla is always up there, certainly not only for the quality of the wine, but the wine tourism. You talked about Main Street and all that. Now, we can't necessarily do that just yet, but it's coming back. And I would highly recommend a visit up there. And, and when you're there, then cruise across the rest of the state, the Yakima Valley in the middle of the state. And even right. they're making a lot of great wines like Woodenville area up Woodenville, by yeah. C- Seattle yeah. and all that. I mean, some really, really beautiful facilities to visit, beautiful wineries, and also they're making gorgeous wines. And we've got great restaurants too. We have, one, we have a killer food scene up here. You know, that's the beauty of being an agricultural community is we can grow anything. And we've got some of the best agriculture in our valley. And that's, you know, the wine culture leads to great food. We've got incredible restaurants here. Um, and uh, we've got great lodging here. We've got some beautiful hotels. We've got a new one that just opened up called The Finch. Wait, you, uh, said, there's, I, there's you a, said I could crash at your place. place when I come up there. What's that? You said I could crash you, at your place. All right. You can crash at my place whenever you want. But everybody else, you got to get a hotel or an Airbnb I, I, I or say, something. I say I come in. I'd come and crash with you if you're on the AC. There we go. Yeah, I'm telling. I know I have it in my bedroom. Um, well, listen, Trey, this has been a real pleasure, man, and long overdue having you on again. Re- I'm reflecting on. I can't believe it's been six years, but that was it. Was really a seminal moment in my life. That trip was transformative for me, and not only you know being in Walla Walla, but all the places that I got to go to around the country. And what you, what I came away from it knowing that I didn't know before was that the wine industry is full of just characters and, and, and people that have had these really full and varied li- li- lives. And you're right up there, man. So you were in the military fashion business, the music and everything. And then, and then you finally, you picked this thing cause you were, I'm sure good at everything you were doing, but you picked this thing and now you're cranking out world-class wines and that's the thing that is so special to me looking back is that I got to meet so many people like you who I'm just beyond impressed with. Well, that's, that's really nice of you to say, Dan. I, I cherish your friendship. I'm glad we stayed in touch after all these years. And uh, I want to come down to L.A. soon, and we definitely want to have you back up here. So, Absolutely. Check out Sleight of Hand Sellers online. Get some of those wines. And uh, Trey, we'll have you back on again soon, my friend. Sounds good, Dan. Take care, buddy. Yep, you too. Hey, this is Joel Stein. Whenever I want booze knowledge, I listen to What We're Drinking with Dan Dunn. That's not what it's called. What's it called? We're drinking stuff. Drinking with Dan. Dan's drinks. I have no idea. Oh, that Joel Stein. Quite the comedian. Joel, former columnist for Time Magazine, buddy of ours here at the show. He's got a great piece in L.A. Magazine, if you go Google it on the L.A. Magazine site, about men wearing makeup. 
just came out. I read it. Good read. Go check it out. That's going to do it for this episode of What We're Drinking. I want to remind you to follow me at uh, social media, at The Imbiber. That's on Twitter and Instagram. I also created a YouTube page, What We're Drinking. I'm putting some of the videos that we do here up there. So you might want to go check that out on YouTube. I got to get better at it, putting more videos up. But please go like the videos, tell people about it. We got some big guests coming up that I want to, you know, let you know. We got Pitbull, Christy Brinkley, Lars Ulrich from Metallica, hopefully Snoop Dogg and Jason Aldean, country superstar Jason Aldean. And what else? Yeah, we got this killer music going. I want to thank Trey Bush, Sleight of Hand Sellers. Get some of their wine. They're great stuff. I want to thank you, everybody listening to me read from American Wino, please buy the book. It's available everywhere books are sold. And you know what? I miss you already. 